you see, grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 10, as we'll continue uh, in the Gospel of Luke. This is, I believe, the fifth time I've been able to be here with you guys at Mercy Hill uh, to preach. And so if only I had a few more kids, I might could join the staff. Um, but um, I, know I fall short. I fall short. I've only got three. Um, this is also the first time in, in the five times I've been asked to do this that I get to stick with the series that Pastor Mike is doing. And so I don't know if that's like a new level of trust or a lower level of trust. I haven't been able to figure out how to interpret that just yet. But I am excited to look at the story of the Good Samaritan with you today. Before we read that out loud and before you check out, because you've heard this story a thousand times, uh, just know that I, I think we're going to maybe take a different look at it than you have. Not that I'm trying to be cool or unique or anything like that. I just think there is some ways that we've interpreted this. I think we've diluted this often to just be a story about how we should just be nice to people. Uh, and there's way more going on here than just an example of being nice to people. As a matter of fact, the, the key really is in the questions that are asked. And there's something powerful about good questions, questions that make you think. And so uh, I wanted to ask some questions just to get that going. So here's one uh, for you. Um, what do you wish you could go back in time and tell yourself 10 years ago? And as you think about that, the follow-up question would be, who are you pouring into that is 10 years younger than you that needs that wisdom? Good questions. Good questions get you kind of thinking and mulling on things. And, uh, and questions can be fun. My kids and I on road trips sometimes will play a game uh, where you have to keep talking, but everything has to be phrased in a question. Uh, and the first person to phrase it not in a question uh, loses the game. And I like to throw them by asking random questions like, hey, what would happen if a vampire bit a zombie. <laughs> Think about it. Which one would infect which? Would they both infect each other? I don't know. Right? But you know, there's something powerful about questions that we ask and how we ask them and even the motive behind the questions that we ask. See, Jesus gets a reputation for always answering questions with a question, which would be really annoying if he truly did that all the time. But there's actually a pattern in Scripture. He doesn't do it all the time. He does it when there's questionable motives behind the question being posed to him. See, there was something about religious leaders would love to kind of play mental chess with each other. And they would come at each other with questions, trying to trap each other. And oftentimes these guys would come to Jesus and they would have some question that their goal was to like get him to answer in some nuanced way that they could trip him up and, and get him going. And he has this just incredible skill and ability because he's God and he's perfect uh, and all-knowing to just always be able to answer back with the right question to put it back on them. And so we see in our, our passage today one of those kind of mental chess matches that we have uh, between people. But here's why it's important to ask questions. I don't know if I've shared this illustration before or not, but if I have, just pretend that I haven't and that it's brilliant. Um, so my bachelor's degree is in theatrical directing, and my wife's is in musical theater performance. And uh, I had the opportunity to 
train under and learn under a nationally acclaimed awarded director. I mean, just, I mean, incredible. The, the theater itself was named after him. Uh, just a great legacy and is a really big honor that I got to be his assistant director in this big production at one point. And there was this actor who just was not delivering the line the way that he wanted the actor to deliver the line. And so instead of telling him, here's how I want you to deliver the line, he just kept asking this actor questions and more and more questions. And it was like slowing down the whole rehearsal. So in my naivete and arrogance of my youth, I stepped in and interrupted. Uh, I don't know if you know anything about theater world, uh, but there's a hierarchy kind of like the military. Uh, and you don't interrupt your director. Uh, but I did, I did, with naivete and arrogance, I said, I think what he's trying to get you to say is, and I, del I delivered the line the way the director wanted it delivered. And I thought, this is brilliant, he's gonna be so glad I did this. I uh, helped him out so much. But he looked at me and cut eyes at me like he could have murdered me in that moment. And said two words, sit down. Oh, okay. This was not the right move. And so I sat down and then later he comes to me and he says there are two very important lessons you need to learn. One, don't ever, 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 ever interrupt your director. I'm the boss here. I determine what happens. You speak when I ask you to speak. Yes, sir. Number two lesson, and this was the one that impacted me more than he knows until actually last year I got to tell him. He said, good directors never give an actor a line reading. Good directors ask good questions. Here's why that impacted me, way beyond theater. Here's what I realized. He was teaching me. Here's what he said. He said, if you just give an actor a line reading, all they will do is mimic what you did. And at best, you'll get an imitation of what you did. If you'll ask an actor really good questions, they'll have reasons and motivation behind why the line is said that will make them deliver it with authenticity. Now, that blew my mind, and as I've applied that way beyond theater for me, I've realized in my Christian walk, there are often times when I'm just mimicking what I've heard someone else say, or mimicking what I've seen someone else do, and Jesus sometimes is going to ask us these questions that are going to get into the heart of why we do what we do, why we say what we say. And then there becomes an authenticity to how we do it. And so if we look at Luke chapter 10, uh, if you would stand with me as we read God's word. Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37. And behold... A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor. When Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, 
came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. You may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. There's a lot of questions in this passage. And I want us to take some time and look through some of these. We'll start with Luke 10, 25 through 28. And I think the central question here is, how do you read it? Look at Luke 10, 25, and behold, a lawyer, that's not lawyer uh, like Farah and Farah or Morgan and Morgan. That is a lawyer in the sense of he is an expert on Old Testament law, the Torah. Uh, And so he does, because the Torah... There is legal systems within the Jewish religious system. He does play somewhat that role, but it's based off of Old Testament law in the Torah. And so, behold, a lawyer stood up, which this would have been common as well. If we were there and I were a rabbi, I would actually be sitting down right now, not standing up. And then if you had a question or a comment, then you would stand uh, to be recognized, and then you would speak. And so that's why he stood up. Jesus is sitting down. There's a crowd of people. Jesus is doing some teaching. This guy stands up, and he has a question to put him to the test. Now, don't over-interpret that word test. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's bad. It was not uncommon for people to put rabbi teachings to the test at this time. And he says, teacher, giving him the honorary title of rabbi, rabbi. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? So there's two parts to that question. One is what shall I do? What is the action? What is the line reading? What is the list? What is it that I need to do? Just tell me what I need to do to inherit eternal life. Now there's a natural incongruency in that question though. Because we don't do anything to inherit. Inheritance is a gift bestowed upon you based on relationship, not behavior. So there's already something mixed up in the way that this question gets asked. Now, to talk about internal life as inheritance is appropriate. We see that in 1 Corinthians. We see that all throughout Scripture, this idea that it's something we inherit. But then to attach to that, that it's something I have to do in order to inherit it, is where we get a bit of a mix-up already in this first question. And so Jesus ask him back. He said to him, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Now, this is really brilliant what Jesus does here, because what the guy's trying to do is get Jesus to teach some nuanced variants of how to interpret this question of eternal life so that he can zing him, so that he can take that, twist it, and show that he's a false teacher and, and go against the teaching of Jesus. See, Jesus has kind of been shaking things up at this point already and getting a reputation. So this guy, I believe, we'll see in a minute, has been following him for a little while, studying him, and he's trying to trip him up. And so he's trying to put the ball in Jesus' court and make him answer a question that's greatly divisive. And so he says, what should I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus just puts it right back on him. 
And he's like, well, I mean, don't you have a Bible? Aren't you a lawyer? Isn't this what you do? Aren't you the expert? What does it say? Now, of scribes, which is another word you could get for this guy as a, as a lawyer, they say scribes because they didn't have photocopiers back then, so the way that the law got copied and the way you became an expert at the law was literally physically copying the law, right? And so that's how we got copies. And so, and it would go in a scroll, and they'd say scribes who were really good, you could take their scroll, and you could put a nail to the scroll, and they'd tell you every letter that that nail hit because they had memorized it so well. So when Jesus asked this guy, what is written in the law, how do you read it? He knows, this guy knows what's written in the law. But the response that he gives is another tactic. He's, again, trying to come at Jesus and put the ball back in Jesus' court. And so he answers, verse 27, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. That sounds familiar. We've heard that before. In our culture today, that's a very common phrasing of a summary of the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, in Matthew, when Jewish leaders come to Jesus and say, what is the greatest commandment? And this is his response. He follows, Jesus follows that response with, and all of the law and the prophets hinge on these two. The, the Old Testament, he's saying, is summarized in these two ideas. Now, that wasn't a common rabbinical teaching in that exact way. So this is what makes me think this lawyer's been following Jesus for a little while and listening to him and learning because he's repeating back to Jesus the way that Jesus... So in my opinion, maybe I'm wrong, he's putting this back on Jesus like trying to, in, in this intellectual uh, chess match, he's trying to put the ball back in Jesus' court. Like, well, this is what you said, right? And so, but Jesus, instead of taking the bait and diving deeply into it, he goes, I love this, verse 28. Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, do that. Right? I mean, verse 28, he says, And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Now, here's what we've got to understand. When Jesus' Jesus's quotes of the great commandment and the second great commandment, right? You probably know this. Uh, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which is called the Shema, which any good Jew would recite every single day. They would put it on their doorpost, right? And then the you shall love your neighbor as yourself is a quote from Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, where it talks about how we should treat other people. Uh, and so these are all Old Testament quotations. And so when he brings them back. Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That do this and you will live is a quotation from Leviticus chapter 18, which leads up to Leviticus 19, where basically the argument in Leviticus 18 is if you'll follow all the statutes and all the commands of God, do this and you will live. Now, here's what's interesting about this. This is similar to when my grandfather would tell me, if you can kiss the tip of your elbow, you, God will grant you any wish that you want. Let's <laughs> see if anybody's trying it. <laughs> you can't do it. And I guess maybe if you're incredibly double-jointed in some weird way, maybe you could, but I spent a lot of time as a child trying to accomplish that feat. <laughs> and it is not possible. When Jesus says, you are correct, do this and you will live, he and the Jewish lawyer both know it's impossible. Like, so it sounds simple. Like, is Jesus teaching works-based salvation here? Do this and you'll live. No, it, the, go back to the lawyer's question. 
What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, the only thing you can do is follow the law perfectly. And so rather than going through the old, whole entire Old Testament, can you, have you, let's just summarize it, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength always. Have you loved your neighbor always, perfectly? Can you kiss the tip of your elbow? No, you can't do it. Right, so while it seems like Jesus has copped out, he's still playing this intellectual chess match with this guy, and it's going to get really interesting. But he asked this question, what does the law say? How do you read it? See, we have the ability right now, more than ever in history, to have more access to the Bible and information about the Bible. And, and you can read it. There's no excuse for anyone in this room to not be able to read it. I mean, if you need to read it in Braille, if you need to listen to it, you need to read it in a different language, you need to, it's, it's here. You got it. But it matters how you read it. And what Jesus isn't asking here is what we do a lot of times in Sunday school when we read a passage and we go, what does that mean to you? Well, I got news for you. It doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters what it means. So Jesus is again putting it back in his court saying, well, how do you read it? So you're asking me a question that you ought to know the answer to. And, and he's taking him back to the law, back to the word of God. How do you read it? See, when we read the word of God, there are three main steps we have to take. Observation, interpretation, application. We need to look at what does it say, who's saying it, who are they saying it to, where were they when they said it, why are they saying it, what are the cultural context of what's going on, and then after that observation, we need to interpret it. What does it mean? What did the original author mean to the original audience? Not what does it mean to me, but what is it intended to mean by the original author, inspired by the Holy Spirit, and then and only then should we move to application. It's so hard for us to not do that, though. Like, it's so hard. We skip so quickly to application, and we want to make it mean what we want to make it mean. And when we do that with a story like the Good Samaritan, we will miss what it actually means. This is not just a story telling you to be nice to people. This is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because the gospel does what law cannot that's what Jesus is trying to get this guy to see. So, still playing this mental chess, we get to the next question. Luke 10, 29 through 35. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now, this question is based off of the fact that the love your neighbor as yourself is a quotation from Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. And so let's think about this for a second. Leviticus 19, 18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So in this, in this guy's mind, he's thinking, you're quoting Leviticus 19, 18. And that passage says that we're to love and be kind to the people that are the sons of our own people. Okay, so Jews. So am I just supposed to be nice to Jews? Well, you keep reading in Leviticus 19. And in verse 34, it says, The stranger who, surge, who sojourns with you shall be to you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself. 
For you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So later in Leviticus 19, hey, you guys were once strangers in Egypt. So because of that, keep in mind when there are travelers coming through, you love them as yourself as well. So there's really two lists in this guy's mind as he's asking Jesus this question. So who is my neighbor? He wants a line reading. He wants a list. He wants to know who's on the list that I got to be nice to and who's on the list I can still hate. Like, give me the clear list and let's see if I measure up. Because it all depends on how you interpret it. So Jesus says, so here's the deal. If, if you're ever talking to Jesus and he answers your question with a question or he starts telling a story, you were wrong. <laughs> just so you, like, this is his nice way of doing it. He's not just being mean and calling you out. But anytime that pattern happens, you're wrong. So, verse 30, Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. That's about a 17-mile hike. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So my question is, why... Did the priest not help this guy? I think it's easy for us to villainize the priest. And when we look back now on the New Testament, it's easy for us to villainize Pharisees and Sadducees and all the other religious leaders. I, this guy was in a tight spot. I mean, it really, really was a tight spot. And so I just, you may already know all this, but I just want to point out a couple of things for you that you need to know. Uh, if this guy is Jewish, the beaten man in the, with, that's there, the wounded man, then the priest does have an obligation to help him. But he doesn't know if he's Jewish. You know why he doesn't know if he's Jewish? How would you know? At that time, a lot of people look a lot alike in a lot of the areas is by the, what the clothes that they wore and their accent of the language that they used. Well, problem is this guy's naked and unconscious. So he can't know. And that's not a small detail. I believe this is really strategic on Jesus' part in this intellectual chess match. Because the question the guy's asking, who is my neighbor, has ethnic and religious bias built into the question. He's asking, do I just have to like people who are of my race and of my religion? And Jesus answers with a story where the guy in need of help, we don't know his ethnicity and we don't know his religion automatically telling us this goes beyond those lines completely. And here's the other issue for the priest. You've probably heard it said that if he were to touch this man, he could likely become ceremonially unclean. I need you to understand that's not just inconvenient. It's not just like a religious frustration. There's a ripple effect of consequences that would happen. If he touches a dead body as a priest, he is no longer able to collect tithes and offerings, nor eat of the tithes and the offerings, until he has gone through a ceremonial process of cleansing, which the process is about a week long, but it takes a few days to set up. So we're talking about a 10-day period. Well, okay, so he can't collect tithes. No, no, no. He can't eat. For 10 days, but not only him, his family can't eat for 10 days. Not only them, all the poor people that are dependent upon that temple and his service to take care of them can't eat for 10 days. If he touches a dead body, there's a lot of people that will go without food for 10 days. In a time where they're not regularly eating three big meals a day, 
and dealing with obesity like we do. So there's big consequences here, and we don't need to lose the fact that there's a lot for this guy to calculate when he's trying to decide, do I help this guy or not? And even if he determines that he's a Jew, and he determines that he's not dead, but maybe he's just half dead, and so he helps him, and he gets him, and he transports him, but then the guy ends up dying of the wounds pretty quickly after, there's still a whole other thing where now he's ceremonially unclean. And if he were to have done any sacred service at the altar in that time where he were deemed unclean in the Mishnah, a teaching of the Jewish leaders of that time, it would have been normal practice or possibility for others, and it says, to take him outside and split his brain open with clubs. So just keep that in mind. This guy's weighing all this out. And if he were to touch him and be unclean, and he dies later, even then he would have to rip his clothing, have to rend his robes, which were incredibly valuable, which at that time there were laws against destroying things that were highly valuable. So now he's in legal trouble. So there's a lot of calculus going on in his brain when he sees this guy beaten and naked and half dead. He's thinking about all the people that might not get to eat for 10 days. He's thinking about how many ways this could go wrong and he could end up in legal trouble or worse. And so he determines it's probably simpler and better for everybody if I just keep walking. So then the Levite comes. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite who came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. Now the Levite has a lot of the same considerations that the priest has, but really one weighs above that more, I think, for the Levite, and that a Levite is hierarchically, in a hierarchy, they're underneath the priest, and he's the priest assistant, uh, meaning his boss already made the determination that as a religious leader, he can't stop and help this guy, and so if the Levite stops and helps him, he's going actively and publicly against his priest, which would create all sorts of other issues going on in this. Now, I'm not excusing their behavior. I just need us to have it in mind. I think sometimes when we look back on history, we have this bad habit of making somebody completely a hero or completely a villain. And we forget that everybody was... We don't do that today. Like, we don't do that with our friends and family today, I hope, that you don't completely villainize or hold people so high on a pedestal that everything they did was right. But for some reason, when we look back in history... We pick these historic figures and either they're completely good guys or completely bad guys. When we've got to realize they're all humans. And so are we. And so these two humans had a lot of things to calculate and decided they needed to pass by. Now, there are a lot of interesting patterns in the story here, and I'll point out some more later, but I want to show you one right now that makes this really interesting when Jesus introduces the Samaritan. In a story like this, it would not have been uncommon to have a story that follows these patterns. And if you'd have introduced first a priest and then a Levite, then the inevitable next character would be a Jewish layman or think deacon. So I'm just going to say deacon because that translates well into our culture. So think, if, if anybody else, any other rabbi were telling the story, everybody's going to expect it to go priest, Levite, deacon. That's just how the, the story would go. That's how it would be told. So when Jesus drops Samaritan, there was probably like an audible gasp. Like, what? Hold on. That's supposed to be the deacon. That's supposed to be the next guy in line. But that's not what he does. 
Verse 33, but a Samaritan as he journeyed came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Now, I may be making a stretch here, but I really don't think I am. It doesn't say this in the text, but there are cultural and geographical things that would indicate that the inn is probably in Jericho. It's somewhere between Jerusalem and Jer Jericho or Jericho, which is not Samaritan-friendly territory. And this is important to recognize that this Samaritan, when he picks up this guy, puts him on his animal, and then takes him into town to this inn, if a Samaritan walks into a Jewish town with a mangled, possibly Jewish guy on his animal, it would not be unheard of for those Jewish villagers to, like, pull him into the town square and kill him and assume he harmed this man. So this Samaritan is knowingly putting himself at great risk by helping this guy. And then he gets to the end, verse 35, and the next day he took out about two denarii, which would be about two weeks worth uh, of money, and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him, and whatever more you spend... I will repay you when I come back. Now, at this time, that's an important thing because if the wounded man outstays the amount that the two denarii covers, he starts to incur a tab. And this is, debt at this time leads to slavery. And so it would have been really easy for this innkeeper to keep him there long enough to build a tab and then, as he gets well, say, by the way, you owe me all this money. Well, here's the problem. The guy's naked. He's got no money. So now he becomes a slave. And there's a way where that system would work where he would just remain in slavery. So when the Samaritan says, hey, when I come back, I'll cover any other cost, he's bringing freedom to this guy who's found him in a situation that would lead to slavery. So after he tells this story, I want you to pay attention to how Jesus responds as he moves from interpretation to application. Luke 10, 36-37. Now, before we look at Jesus' question, do you remember the lawyer's question? Who is my neighbor? What's the list? Who do I have to be nice to? Who can I still hate and avoid? You know that the tension between Samaritans and Jews is deep. As a matter of fact, Jews prayed that God would not redeem the Samaritans. I mean, it's real deep. The ethnic and religious tension here. And so when he says, who is my neighbor, it'd be one thing if even Jesus said, you need to be nice to Samaritans. But for Jesus to present the Samaritans, the hero of the story is an unfathomable twist. And so Jesus takes him back to his question and he correctly rephrases it. Where the guy says, who is my neighbor? Look what Jesus says. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor? Hold up. He moved it from who do I have to be nice to to who do I have to be? Not who is my neighbor, or maybe somebody you come across in need. No, 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 no. He's flipped it completely. 
What does it mean for you to be a neighbor? What does it mean for me to be a neighbor? Don't ask who your neighbor is. Just be a good neighbor. We all need good neighbors. And to quote the great Mr. Rogers, will you be my neighbor? (laughs) There's a pattern here that I want to point to you. Uh, There's... There's a thing called a chiastic structure that happens sometimes in the Bible. The best way I know how to get you to visually understand this is think of uh, a flying V of ducks. Can you imagine in your mind right now a flying V of ducks? Talk about great questions. My dad always had a great question. Why is one side of the V always longer than the other side? And then he would always say, because there's more ducks on that side. (laughs) But... For this illustration, let's imagine that it's perfectly symmetrical. And there are seven ducks. So that means there are three ducks on the top line of the V. There are three ducks on the bottom line of the V. And then at the point, right here, is the central duck, right? So this is called a chiastic structure in Scripture. And it happens a lot. Psalms 23 is a chiasm. Uh, Deuteronomy is an entire series of chiastic structures. Hebrews is chiastic structures. Isaiah 28 has chiastic structures, right? And so we have these beautiful things where what that means is this tail end duck and this tail end duck all relate to each other, right? They relate, they correlate. Then the next duck and the next duck relate and the next duck and the next duck relate. So the three ducks relate to the one parallel them. And are you following me? Does this even make sense? Okay. And the point of the story, anytime you see a chiastic structure, the point of the story is the central duck that nothing else relates to. It's all pointing, like a V, all pointing right at that point of the story, right? So if you look at the story, there's actually seven scenes. There's three ducks and there's a central one, right? It's not always seven, but this one happens to be seven, uh, which we we can go into the numbers of that, but I don't have time. Um, So let's look at the very first scene in the story is a man is beaten and stripped and left half dead, unconscious. Everything's taken from him and he's hopeless. The very last scene, scene number seven, which correlates with that, is the Samaritan takes him to the inn and not only pays for his immediate needs, but commits to pay for the future needs after taking care of him, and everything is now restored, and he is protected from slavery, right? So those relate as a reversal because of the gospel is what we're going to see here. All right, then the next scene, scene number two, is when the priest comes by. Now, priests were so wealthy at this time because of the religious systems that have built up that there's no chance that this guy was walking 17 miles. He was riding 17 miles. And he could have transported this guy where he needed to be, but he fails to transport him. So scene number six, the correlating duck in the story, is where the Samaritan transports him to the end as we move forward at the beginning and backwards from the end of the story. And then scene number three is when the Levite, who was the assistant to the priest and would have had all the things necessary to mend the wounds of the beaten man, but he chooses to go on and not do anything as well. And so the correlation, the correlating duck on that story is for number five. Scene number five is the Samaritan binding the wounds. And so what we see here is the Samaritan God uses to reverse all the bad things that happened. And so it all points to scene number four where the Samaritan shows compassion. And so when Jesus says, who is my neighbor? This scribe knows the chiastic structure. He knows what was supposed to happen, but he can't bring himself to say the Samaritan because he hates Samaritans so much. 
So he says, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And here, Jesus goes, yeah, go and do likewise. That sounds really simple. What Jesus is telling this lawyer is go and sacrificially cross ethnic and religious boundaries, risking your life, risking your money, risking your reputation, risking everything you are and have, and go into hostile territory to redeem someone from slavery. That's what it means to be a good neighbor. Now, when we hear that, there's a tendency to feel guilty and go, I can never be that nice. That's the point of the story. You can't kiss your elbow. You can't be this good. Maybe once, maybe once you'll do it, maybe twice. You can't do this every day. So what must I do? To inherit eternal life, we'll go and do likewise. Go be perfect. Well, good luck with that. You're not able to do that. So then that leads to another great question that we find later in Luke when Jesus encounters the rich young ruler and he asks a similar question to the lawyer about inheriting eternal life. And Jesus says, well, you know the law. And they have that same kind of back and forth chess game. And then he says, well, I've done all those things. Well, Jesus doesn't say, no, you haven't. But then he points out how he hasn't done it perfectly. And he says, well, sell everything you own and give it to the poor. And then go follow me. And the rich young ruler leaves sad. And after he leaves sad, in Luke 18, 26 and 27, those who heard that say, well, then who can be saved? Right? If that's the standard, I can't meet it. And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Don't look for a line reading here. I'm not going to define for you what being a good neighbor looks like. I'm going to tell you, you don't have it within you to do it. And that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is we're asking the wrong questions in the first place. What must I do to inherit eternal life is the wrong question. Because we can't do it. So are you looking for a list? You're hoping that in the end you'll get funeral-type judgment? You go to a funeral, and you know this guy was a jerk, but everybody says nice things about him. Are you hoping that's kind of what judgment day is like? That's not the standard. Listen, just like the lawyer, you cannot justify yourself. Just like the priest and the Levite, you will find your attempt to, you will find yourselves, find yourself attempting to justify your ways through religious activity. You cannot fulfill the great commandments on your own. But we are like the wounded man with no identity, with no hope, with no resources, with no recourse, without a way forward. And there's no religious system, there's no leader, there's no activity that can help us. But, like the good Samaritan, Jesus sees us in our need, and he demonstrates great compassionate love. Romans 5, 8 says he demonstrates that love and that while we were still sinners at the right time, he died for us. The Samaritan doesn't die in this story, but he enters into a position where he could. 
Jesus entered in a position where he knew he would die. We will find that empty religion fails to heal our wounds, but Jesus makes all things new. Where empty religion just offers impossible lists that we cannot accomplish, even if that list is so short as prayer, prayer, and get baptized, Jesus says, come to me, you who are weary and tired, and I will give you rest for your soul. The author of Hebrews gives several warnings not to miss the rest that God has for us. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 is my last passage for you this morning. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Listen to this. Let us then without confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. When it says, let us with confidence approach the throne, man, this is wild, right? Because in the Holy of Holies, only, only the high priest got to go in once a year on the Day of Atonement, and it was such a scary ordeal. They'd tie a rope around his ankle so that if he went in and died, they were just dragging him out. Nobody else was going in after him. There is great timidity and fear and entering in the Holy of Holies for the Jewish legal system. But Jesus says he's here because he is our great high priest. We, we get to walk in with great confidence or boldness, knowing that we don't have to fear his judgment, but knowing he has stood in our place by dying on the cross and that we can walk in confident of his grace and his mercy. What would it look like for you to truly and fully rest in Jesus as your high priest. Like really rest. Like think about that word. Like your soul not be uneasy. Like you're not trying to prove anything. You're, you're not trying to be good enough. You're not trying to earn anything. But like just rest. What would it look like? How would your life be different? How would churches in America be different if we did that? How would America be different if everybody who called themselves a follower of Christ really rested in Jesus and then out of that rest came fruit of radical compassion, not so that we could earn God's favor, but because we have God's favor, we would be radically compassionate across ethnic lines, religious lines, political lines, whatever. What, what would this world look like if people who called themselves followers of Jesus would go and do likewise? How would truly resting in Jesus transform your life? Last question. How do you think God sees you? Like, like what does God think when he looks at you? Do you think that God looks at you like, we've done the transaction, you said the prayer, you go to church, and so you're saved, you're in the family, but maybe you're like that weird uncle that nobody wanted to invite to Thanksgiving, but you felt like you had to invite to Thanksgiving, but you're okay if he doesn't come. And I think sometimes we feel like God looks at us like, hey, you're here, I love you, and I, I love you. Or do you, do you really believe that God sees you with just insane amount of love as a redeemed and adopted child, completely washed 
by the blood of Jesus, completely clean, standing righteous before him. Not good enough, not enough to get in, completely righteous, washed in the blood of Jesus. And have you found your rest there? If not, that'd be the greatest thing you could do. Don't walk out of here and just think, I gotta be nicer to people. Find your rest in Jesus, not in a list. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the ability to read your word, to hear from you, to serve you. Lord, I pray that we would be overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy. Lord, for those that have been bound by the slavery of legalism, I pray that they would find freedom in you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.